Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today. I'm pretty excited about this topic. This is something we've never covered in almost 12 years on the air. We've never covered this topic on Go Green Radio. We're going to be talking about biomimicry. And in fact, we have the executive director of the Biomimicry Institute, Beth Ratner, on with us today. And we're going to be talking about what biomimicry is and all of the great programs that she runs at the Biomimicry Institute. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Beth. I am so glad to have you on the show. Thank you, Jill. That's really sweet. Uh, Twelve years. I can't believe you've never covered this. This is great. I know. I know. We've been remiss, but better late than never, right? (laughs) So (laughs) let's start by Um, having you help our listeners understand who you are and what biomimicry is. Sure. Um, I guess let me just tell you a little bit about me so that you can understand that I'm not a biologist, first of all. I was a lawyer, um, and straight out of law school, I got recruited into the Clinton White House working on the healthcare campaign. And I, I think from those early days, my main motivation has always been fairness. Like, what is fair for, for everybody to experience? And then I landed myself in tech. I worked Hewlett Packard on the bottom of the economic pyramid. How do we provide services for people who earn $2 a day? That led into sustainability management consulting. But then I read two books, uh, Cradle to Cradle and Biomimicry by Janine Benyus. And uh, long story, I ended up leading both organizations, even though I'm not a chemist. And like I said, I'm not a biologist. And my goal was to try to make these really important concepts actionable. And so um, I can tell you what biomimicry is, which is it's innovation inspired by nature with one main purpose, which is learning how all of human activity can fit in better on this planet. So bio means life. Mimicry is to imitate. And when we look at plants and animals and insects and how they live on the planet, we can actually learn a lot. We can learn how to design differently from everything from how to make carbon negative cement to planning a city that functions beneficially like a forest. Mm-hmm. And when we take a step back, right? Yeah. So yeah. I would say when we take a step back, we realize that humans, everything we do is a design decision. And then we realize, well, maybe, maybe we need some guidance. Well, and you know, it's funny, the two books that you mentioned are on my bookshelf, too, and I actually had the chance to see Dr. Benyus speak uh, at a conference not too long ago, and I was so inspired um, by this concept of biomimicry, that this is a long time coming in actually having you on the show and talking about the Institute. But I think, you know, for, for all of our listeners who haven't had the benefit of reading her book or seeing her speak, sometimes the best way to understand a concept that's new to us is to hear about examples. And so I want you to explain some examples of biomimicry in action. What are some of the most impactful examples that relate to sustainability or regenerative design? Sure. Um, yeah, there's there's actually sort of a framework to hold even before we dive into an example. And the framework is that we've been told that if everybody here in the West lived the way that we do, everybody else on the planet lived the same way we do, we would need three Earths, right, to sustain that kind of living. And if we get to 10 billion people on the planet, we're going to need five Earths 
that's just not going to happen. And so, but the concept itself is really stressful. And then you add in on top of that climate anxiety and toxification of our air and our water, our soil, and you start to realize that people will just shut down. They don't really know what else to do. Then you go outside, right? And you see this 200-foot redwood tree that's distributing water or um, a maple seed pod that on its very own has traveled a long distance from where it started or a barnacle that attached to a rock or a boat without, you know, it's a glue that works underwater. And we remember something really fundamental, which is that nature has the answers to everything that we humans want to do. And we are actually part of nature. And we don't actually have to solve for every problem on our own. We can have this kind of help. So that's, that's like the bigger framework which mm-hmm. is important to remember about biomimicry. And the most, like, the most relatable example, and then I'll give uh, like, a few more sustainability-centric examples, is Velcro, because we all have Velcro in our closet. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if do you know the story behind Velcro. I don't. I don't. The um, uh, 1940s uh, Swiss engineer named George de Mistral, he's hiking in, in the local Switzerland hills. And he's getting irritated because these these birds keep attaching to his dog's fur and to his own pants. And he keeps pulling them off, and he looks at them finally, and when he gets home under a microscope, and he realizes that there are hooks at the end of each of those birds, and that's why it can attach and detach all the time. That starts in him the question of, like, well, maybe we humans could use the same kind of function. That's, um, that's a really easy way to understand how we go from an, um, an observation in biology and turn it into a design concept that we humans can use. And so that the way to understand biomimicry is you just kind of look at a couple of big words or keywords. One is function. It's always a verb. How does nature attach in this case? And then there's the strategy, which is how is it doing it? In this case, it's those hooks at the very end of each spur. And, that's, um, and then when we start to think about it in terms of sustainability, there's a lot of great examples. The one of my favorites is actually... We're going to talk about this, but we have a series of teams that go through our process, starting with young kids in middle school and high school, going all the way through university to entrepreneurs. And one of our teams is tackling this problem of microplastics, right? We don't, have you been hearing about how microplastics oh, are? Yes. Oh, yes. Right? And so there's a lot of great examples in nature. Manta rays, for instance, they take in huge amounts of water, and they're eating plankton, right? And they have these arrays, these like leaf-like like lobes, kind of like um, fallen dominoes. And the spaces in between those dominoes, these are, this is like their teeth or in, within their mouth. In between those spaces um, are little vortices, little vortexes of water that, that spin around. So as the manta ray is taking these big gulps of water with the plankton in it, the plankton mm-hmm. is bouncing off of those vortices. It's collecting at the top of the mouth, and that goes right into the manta ray's throat. So this team was called it. Um, so basically, so like just to go back to our little biomimicry lesson here. The the function is has nature filter, and in this case, the strategy is using this kind of vortices process, this kind of ricochet basically process. So this mm-hmm. team called floating coconut designed a clog-free resisting device that that basically redirects the plastic fibers and is able to collect them and then pull them out of the water. So when you put these, these basically these cocoa nets at the source emitters, 
we can stop all that microplastic from going into the rivers and into the oceans. Whoa, that, that is so cool. That's really cool. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's because um, because you know nature. Uh, it, it what Janine says, who you'll get to talk to at some point, is failures are fossils. If these mechanisms didn't work, then that creature wouldn't be alive anymore. That's how we know this is a really good design idea. And the manta ray doesn't have a lot of time to like pull things out of its mouth, right? Take yeah. out of its teeth. So it has to. We have to figure out ways to emulate these these strategies that have been tested over time. And we're at a place right now where we don't have a lot of iteration cycles to get it wrong. So why don't we just start with the ideas that have already worked? Well, and and that's the brilliance of this whole concept of biomimicry is looking around at the the natural world to see how the way that you know insects and animals and flora, you know, how they are surviving, um, what clues that can give us to design. But what if I'm not a biologist? Like you said, you're not a biologist. I'm not either. Right. Um, what if our, you know, architects, what if our urban planners want to learn about how an organism functions? How do they engage in, you know, even the rudimentary steps to biomimicry? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, frankly, most biomimics aren't biologists. Um, they are designers, they are engineers, they are the people who make our world. And we have a really great tool called Ask Nature and asknature.org. It's free. It's an opportunity for anyone to type in this kind of question of function, like I said, which is almost always a verb. Or you can look it up by a particular creature that you're engaged. Like my nieces love penguins. So she types in penguin and she gets more like, oh my gosh, that's how it insulates. That how, that's how it you know, buoys itself straight out of the water. These are, it's an entire, you know, list organized so that people who are making our world can find those kind of examples that they need immediately and hopefully in an understandable way that they can start translating it into their designs. And I I give you sort of a good example of um, some guys who did this who, again, aren't biologists, but they're these brothers um, and they started a, a small company called Nucleario. There's two brothers out of Brazil and they were paragliders. They're, so they're flying over the Atlantic rainforest, and they're noticing that even though they know that a lot of reforestation is, is supposedly happening, that the forest isn't really getting much better. So it turns out that half of all reforestation efforts in that region fail. They fail because of, like, leafcutter ants. It fails because of invasive grasses, lack of nutrients. You know, you've got a bunch of really well-meaning volunteers who go up hills, these steep hills, and they plant their little sapling, and they say, good luck, little tree, and then they leave. And then, of course, mm-hmm. they wonder why it's like a 50, right? it's a 50% failure rate. So they wondered, well, how, how would nature do that same task in a condensed time frame? And so they looked to ask nature, and they looked and they found the bromeliad, which is, imagine, like the top of a pineapple that, that has those, that ability to collect water and collect nutrients. And so they created a biodegradable device that's pretty big. It's like almost almost five feet, four feet long, or basically around like a disc. And it has that bromeliad shape. And what that does is allows the sapling to be planted right in the middle of it. And it can passively collect water. It can passively collect leaf litter so that it has nutrients and compost going into it on a sort of steady basis. It also suppresses the grasses, keeps those leaf cutter ants away, and they have a 90% success rate. And it's all because they were able to 
understand that the function that they were really trying to, they broke it down. It's not like how does nature plant trees? They broke down the function. How does nature collect water, collect nutrients? Looked on Ask Nature, found those kind of answers. That is remarkable. And what I love about that is, you know, these guys were not professional you know, inventors, you know, entrepreneurs, they became that way because they noticed an issue. They were, you know, like you said, paragliders, and they were able to engage with your institute. And we'll hear more about the programs in which they engaged in a little bit um, and, and design something that solves a huge problem. Um, So this is really exciting. I want to let our listeners know before we take a quick commercial break that if you want to check out the Biomimicry Institute website while we're on break, uh, don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on on Voice America, but you can open a new tab in your web browser and go to biomimicry.org. We'll be right back with uh, after a few commercial breaks, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. Glad that you're with us today. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Beth Ratner, and she is the Executive Director of the Biomimicry Institute. You can check out their website at biomimicry.org. I'm really excited about this segment, Beth, because we're going to be talking about some of the programs that you run through the Institute. You've got several. And I'd love to give you a chance to share each one of those programs with our listeners. 
I, I heard a podcast series last year called The 30 Animals That Made Us Smarter. It was on BBC. And uh, these strategies can be found on Ask Nature, which we just heard about during the last segment. It's an amazing tool available to anyone looking to solve design challenges with biomimicry thinking. So, Beth, we have listeners from all ages, and it seems like this resource could benefit anyone from, you know, elementary school on up to adults. So, for our younger audience, why don't you start by talking to them about the Youth Design Challenge? Uh, Thanks, Jill, for asking. We live in this really unique time with Greta Thunberg being so powerful and organizing these climate marches. And we also live here in the United States with something called Next Generation Science Standards. And what Greta is doing is getting people, especially kids, really amped up saying, we don't have to live this way anymore. We have to take control of our future. And she's marching the kids out of the classroom. But at the same time, we've got to march them back in to learn and be proactive. And that's where NGSS, Next Generation Science Standards, comes in because it's it's centered around phenomena. How does something work? Like when you, uh, the, the blue of a morpho blue butterfly, for instance. It's also project-based, and it focuses oftentimes on, on environmental education. So we're at this place right now where, you, where biomimicry has this unique window. So the program, the Youth Design Challenge, is for middle school and high school students. We piloted back in 2018 with just a couple hundred students. We weren't even looking for that many. We just wanted to make sure we got it right. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, we're hitting a few thousand students. And now we're going to be tripling it again this year. And it's, it's amazing because these kids are creating solutions like roof tiles based on how the Saharan silver ant reflects intense heat or an alternative like to kite, uh, tidal kite energy using seed pods as a model. And what we notice is that they're creating ideas that are what I call like way above their pay grade, meaning that they're like they're more technically advanced in physics and engineering than you would expect them to understand. And that's because they really understand how the biology works. And that frankly, like that's the best way to learn. They're curious, they're engaged in a real phenomenon, they can hold it in their hands. And then later, as they grow up, they'll understand the abstract principles that were governing it. That's that's experiential learning. And when, so we've, like I said, thousands of kids have already gone through this program and we did it, we brought in an independent evaluator and the numbers kind of blew us away. They said that 87% of these kids showed improved problem solving skills, 90% showed increased creativity, and 93% showed us greater interest in nature and sustainability. And it's all just in a few weeks while those teachers meet the requirements that they have to teach around around the standards, around NGSS. So that's, that's something that we're super excited about. It's a relatively new program, but it's working, and we feel like that's really the key to getting a whole new generation thinking differently. Well, and you also have a global design challenge. Talk to us about that program. Yeah, well, and so it's not just for kids, right? It's not just for middle school and high school kids. We have this global design challenge, and that's for university kids, students, mm-hmm. not kids anymore, they're students, um, <laughs> <laughs> I showed you how old I am, um, and, and new learners, right, who are just new to biomimicry. Again, it's that same sort of immersive process, and we've had students from Egypt, 
who looked at a camel stomach to redesign their town's open sewage canal system. Oh or my gosh. Or a who, mastered, who like basically modeled a passive cooling technique to create refrigerant-free cooling devices for food and medicine in poor regions. We've had about 3,000 students go through this program from 52 different countries. 25,000 people have used the resources. It's, um, again, it's like the most hopeful part of what we do is we get to see these submissions coming in from all over the world of people who just kind of lit up. They went, wait a minute, I can look... I can look to my natural organisms right out my window, or in this case, you know, the camel in Egypt or, or, or online through Ask Nature, and get these very different and innovative level of solutions. And I can, I can tell you about a couple of them if you want. To yeah. Share. Oh, please do. Please do. Sure. Um, let's go back to filtering for a second, like we talked about before with the manta ray. There's a lot of, there's a lot of creatures in nature that filter, so... There's a, there's a team that, that came to us out of, um, out of upstate New York, out of Cornell, and they were really worried about mosquitoes. So, I don't know if you know, but 600,000 people a year die from malaria. Uh, there's a, you add into that dengue fever, West Nile virus, Zika, it's like those numbers only get worse. And with climate change, this is a real, this is a growing problem. So, what this team out of Cornell created was basically like a solar-powered Roomba for the water. And it works the same way that a bladderwort plant works, which is a carnivorous aquatic plant that uses these small, hollow little sacs that capture and digest animals like insect larvae. And it also has um, a baleen whale type filter that takes out basically, so lets everything else pass through except for that larvae. And so what it's doing is it's capturing the mosquito larvae through this, like this, again, the solar powered Roomba is how to think of it. And that you can put into a pond into a small lake, and it's perfectly healthy for the rest of the fish, but you're dramatically bringing down the mosquito population because, and, and it's not using chemicals. So nature doesn't use that kind of, well, nature, of course, uses chemicals, but, but benign chemistry for the context. Mm-hmm. In this case, they're using these little vortexes again, little vortices to crush the larvae so that they don't have to toxify, like say, a, a rice field that's filled with water. It's, it's, a, it's a game changer of an idea, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that it can go forward. What about some other examples? Because I love this. This really brings the whole idea of biomimicry yeah. to life. Yeah, let me, I, I've, I got a lot. So we have um, another one that I really love is a team out of uh, Cal State Long Beach here in California. And they, so as you know, there's something called heat island effect. So when the heat, hits a building, especially like in Los Angeles, you can, the outside temperature can be 90 degrees hotter than the ambient temperature outside. So what does that do? It just makes that that radiant heat hits the building all the more inside and people just run their air conditioning even more. Now, 90% of buildings out there have air conditioning because it's only getting hotter on our planet. So this team was trying to figure out, well, how do we how do natural organisms stay cool, especially ones that are stationary, right? We know how birds, you know, if you can move, you can stay cool easily. But how does a stationary creature stay cool? And, and the answer was the wavy cactus. So it, a wavy cactus, and you've probably seen pictures of it before, it, it like literally looks like this sort of tall cylinder with have, that has waves to it. One side's hot, which kind of casts shade on the other side, which stays cool. And that produces air currents that radiates the heat out away from the center of the cactus and it kind of just rises off the spines, kind of like a, a heat sink. So this team uh, created essentially a large screen, 
like a, imagine like a you know five story building high screen that's mm-hmm. modeled after that same wavy cactus design, and it can be applied to any building after the fact, so you don't have to extensively remodel your building, and it can drop the ambient temperature uh, by half. So that is it, remarkable. It's a, it's a huge idea, and again, like. These are still young people who are learning their way through the processes of design and engineering, and they're creating very sophisticated design concepts, and it's because they understand the biology. Well, let me ask you this, and I I know you have a great question for this because I read ahead on your website, but I know that people are probably thinking, okay, these are fantastic ideas, but what if you want to bring them to market? What if you want to make a real company and actually market this solution and not just win a design challenge prize, but if you want to go ahead and actually bring this to the market, how do they do that? Yeah, it's it's a really important question. This was So the way this started was, we were noticing all these amazing ideas kind of coming into the Institute. And honestly, we kept thinking, this should be on the market. Why is this not getting anywhere? It's because oftentimes either were students or they're young entrepreneurs and they didn't really have that kind of support or help. And if they did get the help, very quickly the accelerators that were helping them would make them drop the biology, like the deep biology. Like they would say, ah, oh, you don't need the wavy cactus design for your, for your screen. You can do these other, this other design instead and it'll cost less. But they knew that if they departed from the biology, the integrity of the product would drop. So we created a launch pad, and that's to help these early-stage companies who are going through um, a really exciting sort of customer discovery and prototyping uh, process be supported. We even take them on expeditions. This last year, we just took a group to Panama where they can more deeply understand the biology and get other examples to improve their product. But the really big way that we're helping move this to market is through our partner, the Ray C. Anderson Foundation. Uh, Ray Anderson started Interface Carpets, huge visionary when it came to sustainability. He had his own spear in the test moment where he is like running a carpet company, realized that he could actually be a force for good. When he died a few years ago, they scoured a foundation, and that foundation gave us the money to give out this Ray of Hope prize. And the Ray of Hope prize it's $100,000, and it sparks this next generation of business leader that is going to get us to a circular regenerative future. The, um, the Team Nucleario, the Brazilian brothers I mentioned before, mm-hmm. they were one of the winners of this prize. And so we're seeing this pipeline. Now, it's a real pipeline now. And we're getting, and we also get, for the Ray of Hope prize, we get submissions from other people who don't even go through our launch pad. We get them, we collect them from university labs and uh, independent startups from around the world. We just want to make sure that the biology is really is really solid, and uh, that that's actually going to happen. We're going to stay tuned because we're going to announce the finalists coming up at the end of next month. Oh, that's fantastic. We will stay tuned. That's that's really awesome. And, you know, what you're doing is creating, through the Institute, the Biomimicry Institute, you're creating a comprehensive solution. I mean, I have seen over the last 20 years that I've been involved, my, my nonprofit is in the green schools movement space. And I have seen so many organizations come through with, you know, sort of a sliver solution, just a, you know, we're going to help you with you know, one little component, or we're going to teach you a lesson, you know, and here's a lesson plan. And, and everybody gets excited about it. And then it all kind of drops when there isn't the economic or, uh, you know, mentoring support, uh, all the things that would actually bring a great idea 
to fruition. And you guys are creating that comprehensive solution so that you don't just get everybody revved up about the idea of biomimicry. You actually help them see it through to marketable solutions. And I I really, really respect and enjoy, you know, what you guys are doing. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have much more with Beth Ratner and the Biomimicry Institute. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Colvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Colvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And just in case you've only now tuned in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Beth Ratner, and she is the Executive Director of the Biomimicry Institute. You can check out their website at biomimicry.org. They are doing some phenomenal work, and it boils down to this. You know, the 21st century is... We're going to see a lot of changes in our world. Everybody kind of has that understanding. And so we're going to need some fresh, new, innovative ways to design the, the world around us, our built environment and the systems that make our standard of living so good. And the Biomimicry Institute is helping uh, young and seasoned designers look at lessons they can learn from living organisms, whether they're animals, whether they're plants, and look at how they're using, you know, their 
the makeup of their bodies or their their stems and you know all their their living parts to survive and and to thrive in the climate in the environment in which we live and what lessons can we learn from them um, to design a more sustainable world so um, I am really excited to talk about the toolbox that you have on your website Beth um, talk to our listeners about what they will find in that toolbox and why they should get right out on your website today and check it out there's um, thank you for what you just said Jill it's what we're finding is that humans make a lot of mistakes when we invent right we try something it fails um, sometimes I like to give the example even of baby formula you know when the baby formula was first invented it was essentially just like beef broth and flour <laughs> and we had a huge vested interest in keeping our children alive. And still, that was the best we could do at the time. The reason why biomimicry works is because we're starting with designs that have already been tested over sometimes millions of years. Shark, you know, how does a shark skin uh, repel bacteria? That's being emulated by a company called Sharklet. Now we can resist that, that, that adaptation off of a shark skin uh, can resist 85% of the ambient bacteria. Like, and you can use it in the hospital. So, for instance, you don't have to use as many harsh chemicals. So the reason why we do this at all is because we're trying to learn faster, better, and hopefully make solutions that fit in with the rest of the planet. And our toolbox starts you through that process. It basically is a step-by-step design guide. And you can find a lot of resources, all of these, through... Um, our toolbox at biomimicry.org, or you can also go to Ask Nature under resources. There's videos, there's online courses, but the toolbox itself is that guide. It walks you through how do you design this way. And I don't know if you know about design thinking that came out of um, IDEO and Stanford D School. It's, it's a very similar process, but there's this, there's this moment in in human-centered design where they say, okay, now brainstorm wildly. Just any idea goes. And what we're saying is instead of just brainstorming wildly, look to the actual wild. There are, there are genius <laughs> ideas that are already exist. And so that's, that's what you're going to find on the toolbox is how to proceed, even if you don't have a background in, in formal design. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed when I was looking at your website is how well laid out all of your resources are. I mean, it's very user friendly and you've done a great job with that. I, I'm not sure. I'm sure there was a lot of thought that went into that, but it isn't just the, the concepts and the resources themselves. Talk to us a little bit about the layout so that our listeners know if they're just tuning in, but they can't get out on your website to check it out right now. What are they going to see? Sure. Um, and by the way, thank you for that compliment. I will definitely pass it on to our team who worked incredibly hard on that layout. Um, if you go, if you go to the toolbox, what you're going to see is, a, first of all, an overview of what is biomimicry. Again, it, you know, it, biomimicry is not a word that rolls off the tongue sometimes. So you, you know, you really got to get your head around it first. And there are these kind of examples, like some of which I've given today, some of which are just more famous even. And then you're going to walk through the design process. You're going to deeply understand what is function. How do you begin to take apart this question? I mean, so an example that we that we do in our workshop sometimes is we say, you know, uh, you're going to create a shelter, a temporary shelter, or you're going to create a different kind of a backpack. 
And then you have to begin to unpack what are all the different functions that go into that, into making that kind of a product. Or a simple one would be, um, you think you want to like create a different kind of a fan. So function would be, how does nature cool? How does nature start to circulate air? And then you're going to, again, go to Ask Nature. You're going to find these, these strategies online. And then when you hit a strategy that starts to really resonate, like with cooling, for instance, you're going to go through this process of emulation. So how do I begin to break down um, Fibonacci spirals or just spirals in general, how it circulates, and then begin to apply it to something that we ourselves are making? That's what you're going to see on the toolbox. I love it. Now, we've talked about the design challenges, both the youth design challenge and the global design challenge, but I'm curious to know if you have worked with any particular industries to help transform their current not-so-sustainable practices. Yeah, um, we do, and we um, we have a sister organization to, uh, called Biomimicry 3.8, and they do private consulting. But when we get engaged by industry, it's to sort of help think at the system level. And we've been asked by the CNA Foundation. CNA is a clothing company, kind of like an H&M, but they're based out of Europe. And they have a foundation, which is really forward thinking. They're pushing the boundaries on what does it mean to drive this circular economy. And they've asked us to sort of say, well, how would nature handle fashion? Which is... Mm-hmm. It's an enormous question, and we're gonna we're in the middle of the report right now, and it'll be released in April. Um, but there's a few things I can share, which is, um, you know, first of all, it's not just fashion; it's all of textile. So it's also what's on your couch, it's in your your curtains. But an estimated um, 500 billion a year in dollars is lost every year just to clothing that's never really been worn or it's not recycled. We <laughs> the equivalent of a truckload is dumped or incinerated every second of every day because we are creating about somewhere between 80 and 100 billion garments for the 7 billion people that live on this planet. And by the way, not all 7 billion are buying. So Mm -hmm. it's a a huge waste problem. And then we go back to the microfiber problem. Like we're releasing about a million tons of microfibers into the ocean every year. And that's equal to five, I'm sorry, 50 billion plastic bottles. So wow. the waste, it's, it's out of control for the fashion sector. But in nature, and here's the problem, is that the fashion sector calls itself an ecosystem. But that's not really how ecosystems work, right? Mm-hmm. That's not how ecosystems work in nature. Because in nature, waste equals food. You don't have a concept of waste. With the blossoms on my plum tree, right, we have far more blossoms than I'll ever have plums. But that doesn't matter because the blossoms are beneficial for the soil. And in the end, the soil is the final arbiter of all life on this planet. So clearly when we landfill or burn out much polyester, we have, we have a problem. We have a waste problem. But that's really a design problem. And that kind of ties back to the work I did with Cradle to Cradle and concept of circular economy that's been made famous by Bill McDonough, Michael Brungart, and now the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. And... What they talk about in circular economy is that there are potentially two cycles for how we can make things. One is a biological metabolism, uh, natural fibers, natural woods, eventually they just get composted or back into the soil. And then there's a technical metabolism. Your metals, your polyesters, your aluminum, things that can actually be sort of taken back and infinitely recycled. 
And that, it sounds like a simple idea, but I got to tell you, it's, it's basically identified a trillion dollar market opportunity to take back our waste. Because right now we have a very linear economy and it's ultimately, um, the, the amount of take back is incredibly small. Yeah, like it really is. Like one, like 1% that we're taking mm-hmm. back, maybe 2%. But what we're realizing is that even with the best of intentions, take back is minimal and a lot of things are leaking. Like we're still getting microfibers in our water. We're still getting pollution in our soil. So we have to remember that maybe those technical loops exist within the bigger biological loop because we, we live in a biosphere. And so we have to really be advancing how we design so that all materials are beneficial for life. Mm-hmm. And full stop. Like that's, that's the big idea here. Mm-hmm. So well, um, and the circular economy yeah. is such an interesting concept. I mean, um, you know, there there are a lot of different efforts out there trying to make it, you know, a, a reality, not just in the United States, but I know China has actually made it part of their five-year plan a couple of times um, so that we, we minimize waste and we design not to waste. I wanted to give you a chance before our next commercial break to talk a little bit about um, your work in green chemistry with Steelcase. Talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. The, um, thanks for asking. So, perfluorinated chemicals, um, really nasty chemistry. Yep. It's, uh, it's, it's a huge problem. It's leaking. It, it's the same stuff that um, Teflon basically is made of. And it's from the manufacturing process. I don't know if you guys have seen the film Dark Waters, but oh, it's, yeah. it's being featured, right? it's featured there. So, the problem is that like, Humans love convenience. Like, we love our stain-repellent fabrics, and we love the fact that we don't, you know, we have wrinkle-free is also a big problem. So, but the going back to um, stain-repellency, that is, you can boil that function down to um, how does nature repel oils? And it turns out that there is a creature called springtail. If you saw this little guy, it's a little insect, and mostly lives near the water, like marine areas, specifically in the muckiest of areas. And it repels everything. And if you saw it, you'd be like, oh, I want to squish that bug. <laughs> but you should not squish that bug because that's a billion-dollar solution in its microscopy, which is, so if we look under a microscope and you see how, it, how it's basically its skin or its, its, ex, its exoskeleton is formed, you see these kind of like a mushroom-shaped design. And that mushroom shape keeps an oil from basically suspended um, and not spilling down into the, into the skin or the surface of the springtail itself. Um, so we took this design idea, and there's another one around Salvinia, which is like the um, sage plant, uh-huh. a certain species. And again, under a microscope, what you see is it looks like the top of an egg beater, and that keeps an oil suspended. And so really the key to repellency is not that you have to, um, all you have to do is basically hold the, the surface tension in place so that it doesn't, quote, wet the surface. And that's because uh-huh. that's what, that, where the stain finally happens. The same is true for water repellency. But it's a little bit easier to achieve than, than boils. And so we worked with Steelcase to talk about how could we help them start extruding the fibers that they're making with this very complicated new shape because the truth is as technology gets better we can put more and more information more and more design structure into mm-hmm. fibers well that's, so that's 
Yeah, that's one of the upshots of 3D printing and some of the other technology that's coming about in materials that we can run through that technology. It's not just, you know, it's it's really limitless when you think about what we could be doing with that kind of technology. This is so fascinating. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but folks, we're going to be right back with more. So don't go away. We'll be right back after this uh, quick commercial break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you're able to join us today. And we're talking with Beth Ratner, the Executive Director of the Biomimicry Institute. Beth, I want to ask you, you know, the Biomimicry Institute has so many great programs, so many fantastic resources. Um, If you fulfill your mission, I mean, and that's that's a big mission, I realize. But how do you, how do you see the world ten or twenty years from now? How will it be different and better than it is right now if you fulfill your mission? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Bill McDonough, who I referenced earlier, who wrote Cradle to Cradle, he tells this great story that I love about the first moon landing. And the average age of the engineers in NASA Houston at the time was 26. Oh. That means that when President Kennedy, right, they were only 26 years old. And so when President Kennedy announces, you know, we choose to go to the moon in the next decade, those engineers at NASA were actually in high school. They were 16-year-old kids and sitting in high school. And what they ushered in was a whole new lens on the universe. They were motivated by this big vision. And 
and they that that whole process that took only ten years changed the view of our own tiny planet and how it looks from space, and it changed us as people, certainly here in America. So funny enough, today our ten-year moonshot is exactly the opposite. It's about coming home. It's about coming back to our planet. It's about learning how to ensure the survival of all living creatures, not just this one species that's human. And, you know, it's about those millions of high school and middle school kids who can fundamentally learn a different approach to STEAM education. Imagine if, like, students were learning from hummingbirds instead of from helicopters, or they learned from that redwood tree about that reaches 200, 300 feet up to the sky. How is it moving water without an electrical pump all the way through its entire tree? Whereas our skyscrapers, you lose 75% of energy for every, as soon as you hit 100 feet. We could see a really different world in 10 years if biomimicry was infused into all curricula, it's at the design table, and it's practiced in our daily lives. You, it's funny, I was looking at your website, and you and my friend Azita both kind of called the shift the same thing, which is it's a behavior change. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a behavior change because once you start to see every tree, every flower, every insect as a set of solutions to our shared problems, you start to value the living world much differently. So true. That is so true. And, you know, we've environmental education and, you know, that's my space um, that I've been in for quite a while. We've we've spent a lot of time trying to get students out in nature to appreciate it. But the the level at which your organization is asking students to observe and learn from nature, not just appreciate it, want to not, you know, trash it. Let's not litter. Let's take care of nature. You're, you're going so much further and saying nature has wisdom. Let's take a moment to learn from nature. And I love that. I absolutely love that. I am pretty sure that our listeners who are with us every week <laughs> are ready to get involved right now. And I want to give you a chance to tell us all the ways that we can be a part of the great work of the Biomimicry Institute. And, and furthermore, how we can support your work. So help us get involved. Oh, well, Thanks, Jill. I, um, you know, I was recently reminded that the future doesn't exist yet, and we don't know much about it, but we do know that we can create it. We can create it. And there's so much beauty and so much joy in, like you were saying, learning from nature, not just about nature. And this is really, this is a boundless font of inspiration. So what we want to see is to get this design approach into every student's life, every adult's life too, but certainly for kids. And last year, I spoke um, to a group of university engineering students who, amazingly, were mostly female. And I was, it was like a rock star. I was swarmed afterwards. I've never experienced that before. But they all were demanding, like, why am I not being taught this in school? So that's what we're here to do. Like, we're here to change that. We're here to make sure that it gets into schools. And at the same time, we also know that humans love tools and Buckminster Fuller had this great quote, which is, if you want to teach people a new way of thinking, don't bother trying to teach them. Instead, give them a tool, right? The use of mm-hmm. tools leads to new ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. That, and that tool for us is, is completely ask nature, right? You, we need an online database that translates nature for us because most of us don't really know the microscopy of the springtail, right? We're going to yeah. have, and, and even if you saw the springtail, it would not instantly occur to you that this was a $23 billion solution to perform these <laughs> chemicals. Like, right. Like, right. We need, we need that translation and we need that, that, that help. And so 
what I, I, I invite everybody to come to our website. Um, like I said, there's videos. There's really easy ways to just get started. Just, just watch um, and, and be excited. But then try it. It's like yoga. The best way to learn biomimicry is to try it. Well, and you actually have a lot of resources for educators. And I know education is a huge part of this. Your website is set up so that anybody can just go on and access it and and just get started. But you have a more formalized way for educators who want to bring this into their classrooms, who want to expose their students to biomimicry. And I love how you've set up your toolbox and and how you've packaged it for educators. Um, Do you want to spend just a a minute telling us about some of the things that you've got for educators that, you know, they they do listen? Oh, I'm so glad that they listen. Uh, So educators are probably the most important linchpin in in shaping that future that we want. We have, uh, please go to youth talent or go to biomimicry.org and then click on the youth challenge. And you'll, you can register. You don't have to be an educator. You can be a mom, a dad. You can be a coach. It, you can register to become a coach in this challenge. And when you do that, the Youth Design Challenge. And when you do that, you get access to a tremendous number of resources, one of which is our storyline. It's like 30 pages long, and it walks you through this process of how do you teach it to your students. Um, there's, a, there's a whole curriculum map that's available as well. There's links, to, like I said, back to videos and other supplemental materials. It will guide you through how does this tie to next-generation science standards because teachers are, man, they're, they are stressed for time. They don't yep. have that opportunity to just bring in any old thing into their classroom. It's got to meet their objectives. It's got to meet their, their, um, their own requirements. We've done that for them. We've, we've aligned awesome. it out so that it becomes a very easy process. That's so respectful of our teachers. Not everybody shows that kind of respect. So I'm, I, I really appreciate that you do that for the teachers. We have uh, maybe about a minute left. In those final moments that we have left in the show, Beth, what parting thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners? Mm, I feel like a big question, but, you know, I, I imagine, imagine that you're in uh, this beautiful, old, quiet library like the kind we have here, right here in Marin. And, and then all of a sudden some people walk in and they're like blaring their music and they're spreading their stuff everywhere and they're, they're <laughs> eating their smelly tuna sandwiches. You would feel pretty disrupted, maybe even angry, and you'd want to stop it. And you remind them that the library's here for everybody to enjoy. And that's sometimes how I feel about humans on this planet. We forget that we are that loud human who is interfering with 8.7 million other species on the planet. And at the same time, we are absolutely accelerating their loss. Some like 8,000, some are a few thousand species die every year. They're thinking Mm -hmm. millions will be dead in a couple of decades. And yet it's not just that we're destroying them. We have this chance to learn from them. Yes, we do. That's well said. Right. Yep. And if we go out to biomimicry.org, you can start that process right now. Beth, thank you so much for being on Go Green Radio. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.
Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.